Okay, I want to get started this morning, guys. I really do want to finish chapter uh, 13 today, so please indulge me, bear with me a little bit. Um, this would be a great stopping point, and then probably won't be until the first of the year that we, resent, we, we resume this. So it's really important, and we're getting into a topic today that's got a lot of different theories and ideas surrounding it. A lot of false teachings have come out of this, so I want to make sure we address it biblically. But before I do, um, I want to read a passage to you from the book of Proverbs, just a, not really related to this sermon, but uh, Proverbs chapter 24. This is something we try to remember as students of the martial arts, that with certain types of training and certain types of uh, jobs and responsibilities comes moral responsibility. And it says here in Proverbs 24, if thou forbear, well, first of all, verse 10, if thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. So in the day of adversity, if we just say, what's the point? And just give up and say, to heck with all of it. Our strength is small. If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth not he know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? So in other words, King Solomon says, If there are those that are ready to be slain and given over to death, and you do nothing whatsoever, or you act like it's not happening, or your decisions reflect those of people that don't think it's a real concern, then the one that keeps us safe, the one that keeps us from perishing, He sees that. He sees that in action. He sees that um, cynicism. And He remembers. And He gives to every man according to His works with the abilities that the Lord's given me in martial arts, I have a certain responsibility morally when it comes to those that are in trouble. I have a moral responsibility to aid and assist even if it's a stranger. But I think that has application for us in the society in which we live here in America today. There are things we can do, there are things we can't do to lift a voice for those that are ready to be slain. And there's a huge swath of our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ in the Middle East and are ready to be slain. And if we do nothing and we have a cynic attitude like, what's the point? America's doomed. Everybody's messed up. Then God will remember that. We've been kept safe for a long time. And He'll remember that. Um, I'm headed to the post office immediately after this uh, Service today, I'll be dropping these official absentee ballots in the mail. Jamie and I made our decision yesterday. And I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of what's written on this ballot. Some of you in here may have a problem with it or may disagree with it. Some people out there have called my Christian faith into, into question. Saying that I have contradicted everything I've stood for in my entire ministry. But at the end of the day, we voted our conscience. And we had in our mind... The persecuted Christians around the world, like Sister Esther and her family. We had in our mind unborn babies. And we had in our mind that God's judgment is already here upon America. And that ultimately, whatever happens, we deserve. But I would just encourage you, 
as this election's coming up, that you uh, think very carefully about what you do. Martin Luther was right when he said that it's very dangerous for us to go against our conscience. When we've been born again, our it's broken and it reveals our guilt when we're dead in our sins. And listening to us shows us our need for a Savior. But when we've been born again and the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, our conscience is a voice of conviction that the Holy Spirit uses. It's dangerous to go against your conscience. Just remember that. I'm not telling you how to vote. The only thing I would say to you in here is that if you mark your ballot for Hillary Clinton, the Clinton-Cain ticket, then I don't even want a fellowship with you. You need to be kicked out of this church. But I'm not going to say anything to you in terms of the alternative. Whether you choose to vote or whether you choose not to vote or whether you choose to write in a candidate, you need to think very carefully about what you do or don't do. It's very dangerous to go against your conscience. There's a sermon that Jeremiah preached to the people of Israel in a time that looked very much like we are today. I would encourage you to go meditate upon Jeremiah 38 and what he told the people of the city and the king himself. If they would do this, if they would submit to an avowed enemy of their enemies, then God would take care of them. There's some wisdom in that. And if you know, if you study biblical history, the nation of Israel, if you study the, the history of the early church in the book of Acts, and you study history beyond the Bible, it's a pretty clear principle that an avowed enemy of the enemies of Jewish people and an avowed enemy of the enemies of the church ends up being a friend of the Jew in the church. That's historical and political. Okay? Uh, Babylon was an avowed enemy of all the enemies in the ancient Near East of Israel. And God used Babylon to chastise her. But it was ultimately Babylon that preserved her. Had it not been for Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and that captivity, the nation would not have been preserved. And so just remember, an avowed enemy of the enemies of the gospel and of the Jew is by default a friend of the gospel and of the Jew. That's historical. That's historic. And to argue otherwise is to be ignorant of history. And ask them the polybelievers in Nepal. Ask them the polybelievers who uh, had to cast their votes in the first democratic election in the history of that country when they were faced with a Hindu king who made the gospel illegal, and with Maoist rebels who eventually graduated out of terrorism in the village and came to Kathmandu as a political party. God used Maoist rebels to kick the king off the throne, avowed enemies of the enemy of Christianity in Nepal. Not that the Maoists were Christians, they aren't. Far from it. But He used avowed enemies of the enemy of the gospel in Nepal to kick that king off the throne, and ever since the Maoists took power in the parliament, the door for the gospel has been wide open in that country. And we've seen the freedom to take the gospel in ways it's never been able to go out. So I praise God in that one instance that He, in His infinite wisdom, allowed Maoism, a, a dangerous ideological philosophy, um, in other contexts, 
to open the door of a country and allow the gospel to go forth. In fact, Vishnu's even had the privilege of giving Bibles to Maoist leaders and they were received. And so let's don't be too hasty in what we do and in what we choose to do. Let's think about it. Study Jeremiah 38. Make your decision or don't make your decision. Um, but make, it, make no mistake, a vote for Hillary Clinton or the Democratic Party platform is an abomination in the eyes of God. It's a grave sin. It's a grave sin. Okay? There are other options. Some of those, I think, would be wasted. There is the option, you have the freedom in this country not to exercise your right to vote. That's a freedom. Okay? I'm not going to condemn you for what you choose to do unless you commit a sin against God by voting for the Democratic Party platform. But if you do vote or you don't vote, here's the other thing. Whatever you do or don't do in the polling booth, you ought not be ashamed of making it public. If you're ashamed to share what you did or didn't do in the polling booth or on a ballot and would rather keep it quiet, then you really didn't believe what you did was right. If you do something, stand by it, okay? What Jamie and I decided to do yesterday, we stand by it. And as Martin Luther said, here I stand, so help me God. No apologies. No apologies. So just think very carefully before you make your decision. And don't consider it a light thing to just throw away. Oh, they're all just screwed up. I'm not even going to take part in the process. Don't have an attitude like that. Maybe you won't take part in the process. Maybe your refusal to take part is a statement of your independence. But don't have that lackluster attitude. These are serious things that deserve thought and prayerful contemplation. So just think about this. This is going in the mailbox. No apologies. None. Alright, let's turn to the book of Revelation. Um, not all decisions are easy decisions. They're not all easy. God never said it would be that way. We do the best we can, and the rest is in God's hands. We do our duty, the rest is in God's hands. Turn to Revelation 13. I want to finish up our study of this false prophet, the seventh major character of the tribulation period. We've talked about his attributes in verses 11 and 12. I've preached about his miracles. In verses 13 through 15, we compare and contrasted true prophets versus false prophets in Scripture. True miracles versus false miracles in Scripture. Today I want to look at verses 16 and 17, this false prophet's jurisdiction in the time of Jacob's trouble. And I want to look at verse 18, the moral. What's the moral of the story here? The beast, in the first half of the chapter, there was a moral to the story. There's a moral to this story, to this character as well. Last week we talked about how he will um, exercise all the power of the Antichrist. He will drive men to worship the Antichrist, deceive them to do so. He'll do great wonders and miracles, even calling fire down from heaven. A lot of this will undoubtedly be in contest with God's two street preachers that we learn about in chapter 11. He will deceive them that live on the earth with his miracles. And uh, he will urge the people of the earth to make a great image of the beast, an idol, a visible idol that he will cause to speak and to seem alive. And whosoever won't worship this great image, this abomination of desolation will be put to death 
Much like what happened in Daniel chapter 3 with King Nebuchadnezzar. Whosoever didn't bow down would be put to death. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow down. And they said, King, our God's able to deliver us from this fiery furnace. That's nothing to Him. But if not, be it known unto you and your whole kingdom, we won't bow to this idol. And at the end of the day, Nebuchadnezzar learned a great lesson. His heart began to become soft toward the things of God. He had to learn another hard lesson in chapter 4. And then by the end of chapter 4, he's confessing the God of Israel is the God of heaven and that the people of his kingdom need to worship that God. It's an amazing testimony. God can change the hardest of hearts. But this false prophet's building of an idol, this driving men to worship an image, it exploits one of our weaknesses as men. We have a weakness as fallen mankind to have something visible to worship. We can't just accept that God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. We can't accept the fact that God can't be seen in His glory by human eyes. And so we desire something visible, something tangible. And oftentimes that desire devolves into superstition. It's humankind. We see it in the church today. Portraits of Christ and crosses and all of these things we somehow feel better about because we've got to satisfy this desire to have something visible to worship. And the false prophet exploits this. He exploits it. That's what religion does. It exploits our desire to have something visible. When God said to the people of Israel, they were not to make a similitude of Him. No, the, 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 the most powerful angel in heaven, the greatest uh, piece of creation in this world is no more like the God of Israel than the bacteria floating around in your toilet. There's nothing like God. How can we make an image of Him? But that's what man-made religion does and that's what will characterize the false religion of the last days that hates the church, hates Israel, and hates everything Jesus Christ. Turn to Exodus 32 for a minute. We see this strange weakness in the people of Israel after they had seen God deliver them from the land of Pharaoh, after they had seen His miracles, they, they quickly fell back into this desire to have something visible to worship. Exodus 32, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. We wot not what has become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in your ear, the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron, and he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. After he had made it a molten calf, and they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is the feast of the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. These people thought they were worshiping their God with a visible image. 
when the second commandment was clear that God had given Moses. They thought they were worshiping God. And by having a visible image, they could gather and party and celebrate and bring offerings. And we know what God's response to that was. The people of Israel will be deceived in these last days. They'll do just like their fathers did in the desert with this false prophet. Many that will be left behind here because they're not true Christians, because they've never put their faith and trust in the Jesus Christ of the Bible, they're going to think they're worshiping Christ. They're going to think Mother Nature purged the world of all the troublesome people when the church is gone. They're going to follow after this idol and think they're worshiping God. They're going to think Antichrist is Messiah. But the God of the Bible, there is no similitude of Him. The God of the Bible said that we're not to worship Him through an image. It's funny how if you go back in church history, the Eastern Orthodox churches and the Catholic churches had a big old disagreement about images. The Eastern Orthodox churches told the Catholics, you shouldn't be worshiping these images, these idols. That's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And they ended up breaking apart. That was one of the major reasons. I think it was 1054 A.D. Well, the funny thing about the Eastern churches, they don't have 3D images, they have icons. Icons are flat paintings. And they're, they're the exact same thing. They're burning candles and touching them and kissing them. But they say, well, it's not a 3D image. The Catholics are guilty because they got the 3D images of the saints. But ours are icons. They're flat. That's the discernment of people. And we're supposed to believe that's church history. That's not church history. That's anti-church history. What a joke. That's... These things cloud discernment. And God said not to do it. Why can't we just take Him at His word? Turn to Deuteronomy 4. People will think they're worshiping God, the Jew included, before Antichrist reveals Himself. And it's in such clear contradiction to the Torah. Such clear contradiction. Deuteronomy 4, 15-19. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for you saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spoke unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you corrupt yourselves, Horeb is Mount Sinai, and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of any male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air, the likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground, and the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth. Unless thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the hosts of heaven should be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. God said not to do it. No similitude. But religion satisfies that innate desire. Man, he's got to have something visible to worship. Well, I can't believe something I can't see. And that's what drives men to idols. And this false prophet will exploit that. And people will fall down and worship Antichrist in droves. In droves. It's a sad testimony. It's a real sad testimony. You know, even in our churches some, or in our homes sometimes things we think are innocent. Number one, we don't know what Jesus looked like. We don't know what He looked like. Most of these paintings that are so dear to us are a white Jesus. Jesus wasn't white. He wasn't Caucasian. He was Jewish. We don't know what He looked like. Why do we treat an image as if it is Him? We don't know what He looked like. And there's reason for that. There's reason for that. But we trust Him who He is because of what He said and what God's Word says. 
This false prophet drives people to worship an image, an automaton, and this is exactly what they want. They'll build it. He'll cause it to speak and be alive. A living, speaking automaton. Exactly what most people are today. They'll worship one of their own. Just like man did at Babel. Babel all over again on a worldwide scale. Man is God. We're all a bunch of automatons that can't speak for ourselves. And we're going to worship an automaton. Like cattle hoarded into a corral. Verses 16 and 17 in chapter 13, by way of introduction. Sometimes I've got some long introductions. <laughs> He's made this image and calls that many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. A living, breathing automaton, worshipped by living, breathing automaton. Sheeple. Sheeple. Sheeple worship one of their own. Verse 16 and 17, His jurisdiction... We've talked about his attributes, his miracles, and now his jurisdiction. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save that he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Antichrist, the beast out of the sea, is the last civil head of man-made imperial government. He's the last of the Caesars. The false prophet is the last of the popes, per se. The last ecclesiastical head of man-made religion. And as the head of man-made religion, he causes all to worship the head of man-made government. He causeth all. He possesses a sacerdotal duty or a sacerdotal authority he uses religion to control people and force them to submit to government. That's what religion has been, always been. That's what religion is, and that's what it'll always be. A means to control the people and drive them away from their Creator to the created being of man. That's the whole history of the Catholic Church. Control. Using religion to control politics. I mean, he doesn't have to write his own playbook. It's already been written. The rabbis in Israel, the ancient kings, using religion when it was convenient to control the people. They never learned. Same thing today, rabbinic Judaism, using religion to control the people politically. Well, the Orthodox community has so much political sway in Israel today. The false prophet just takes, a, he takes his play from the playbook of man-made religion. He calls it all, using that religious jurisdiction to control people politically. Control, control, control. God doesn't seek to control us. He didn't create robots. How, if there's no such thing as free will, now you don't have the free will to go out here in this yard and desire to jump from the yard to the roof and actually do it. You don't have that type of free will. But if there's no such thing as a choice or free will, then how in the world did Israel bring free will offerings? It's called a free will offering. If there's no such thing as free will, then what is a free will offering? It makes no sense. But God gives us the command and the opportunity to worship Him. 
and the consequences for those that doesn't. He doesn't have to use politics to control us. That's the problem with so much Protestantism that didn't learn in the Reformation is it took a playbook from Catholic political control and tried to exert that same control. And if you don't agree exactly like me, if you don't vote exactly like me, then you're a heretic and need to be punished. Man-made religion causeth all. That Spirit is here today. We don't have to wait for the man. The Spirit's here today. He causeth all. Power over all to enforce the will and decrees of the Antichrist. He has the power to persecute with full authority. Just like Paul was given power and Hedron to go out and persecute Christians with full authority. Paul was shaken to the core by Jesus Christ on the road of Damascus and repented. This man will be shaken, by the core, shaken to the core by Jesus Christ and cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Turn to Daniel 7.25. This speaks a bit about Antichrist authority and his boldness. He'll do what no one else has the guts to do. He shall speak great things, chapter 7, verse 25. Great words against the Most High. So, Antichrist isn't ashamed. He's not using covert language here. Bold, outspoken. Great things against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. He'll be so bold as to change common law. To change dates and calendars and seasons. That's how bold he is. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times, that's three times, and a dividing of time. Half a time. Three times and a half a time. Three and a half years. The Great Tribulation. Consistent with uh, Jesus' Olivet Discourse. After he reveals himself at the midpoint and consistent with Revelation. The Bible is always consistent. False prophet will enforce these changes that Antichrist makes. He'll enforce them. This is what he says. These are the seasons now. This is the calendar. No borders, no language, no culture. You submit or die. Sounds like Islam. Islam's not smart enough to take over the world and give rise to Antichrist. Trust me, they're just not. But in Islam is a type of the dictatorial authority we'll see from the head, the religious and the civil head of this one world government. Full authority. Bold, outspoken authority. And I think we need to remember that when we get into discussing the mark. Very visible. Very bold. Nothing secretive. Nothing clandestine. Not going behind your back like Obama and Clinton does. You know, they've got their public self and their private self, and they say all these little things behind the American people's back and then tell you one thing to your face. That's not the way it's going to work. These political leaders that are judgment from God upon a wicked world, they're going to tell you straight to your face what they say in private. And you either accept it or not. Very bold. Speaking great things. So remember that as we get into a brief discussion here on the mark. He has this full authority call people to worship this image of the beast, and He causeth all. There's no exemption here. All must receive a mark. Rich and poor. Rich don't get out of it like they do today in America. Free and bond. 
You don't purchase your way out of it like so many so-called righteous anti-slavery Yankees did in the Civil War. They knew how to bring immigrants over and, and, and hire them as mercenaries to go, instead of submitting to the law of conscription, they would hire these poor immigrants from Ireland that came over, pay them 300 bucks, and send them out to the battle lines to be slaughtered in their place. You see, the rich and the powerful have all these aspirations and what, should, what they say is right and wrong and all the poor and all of this kind of stuff, but they don't get on the front lines. Hypocrites. Not in this day. Rich and poor, free and bond, will receive a mark. A mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. This word mark here, it comes from the Greek word that means a scratching or an etching, a stamp. Something that's visible. A scratching. It's like, it's like what you do when you're tattooed. It's a scratching or an etching made. The word to receive, to receive a mark in the original language, also means to show, to receive. There's an element of visibility here that the language or the syntax itself does not allow us to ignore. This mark, my friends, by virtue of the syntax itself, by virtue of Antichrist's bold, outspoken blasphemy, it's not invisible. It's not invisible. It's not some chip hidden under the skin that people can just be accidentally tricked into receiving. Chip technology may be involved to regulate commerce, but it's not invisible and hidden. You're not going to be taken against your will and have something inserted into you with no control whatsoever. This is a visible mark. It is a literal mark or branding. And it says here in verse 16, in their foreheads and in their right hands. In their forehead or in their right hand. You'll have a choice where you want it. That word in is a Greek preposition that connotes superimposition or becoming a part of something inseparable. Once it's in, it's inseparable. But that same word appears in chapter 20, verse 4, where the King's English says upon. It's translated in here. And in chapter 20, verse 4, in talking about the mark, it's translated upon. Were the King James translators wrong or were they contradicting themselves? No. Because what we're talking about is a visible mark that is upon, it's visible, yet it's inside. It's upon, it's visible, yet embedded. There is a visible element that associates the bearer of this mark with the worship of Antichrist. It's a seal. Those that have the Holy Spirit have been sealed. It's an invisible seal. Those that have the Antichrist will be sealed with a visible seal. Holy Spirit is invisible, manifested through our works. Antichrist is visible, manifested through the worship. Antichrist is very forward. We learn this in Daniel. We've already read verse 25 from chapter 7. If you look at uh, um, Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, 
Um, talks about Antichrist. I consider the horns, talking about that fourth beast out of that ten-nation federation of the fourth Gentile kingdom. There came up among them a little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Bold blasphemy. Bold. Very forward. We learned this in earlier in chapter 13 of Revelation when we learn about the beast out of the sea, Antichrist himself. Verses 5 and 6, There was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Verse 6, He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, to blaspheme his tabernacle, and to blaspheme them that dwell. The word dwell uh, connotes mansions in heaven. So he's even blaspheming the raptured church that's in heaven at the time. Very forward. And this forwardness demands that the mark is visible. It demands it. It's not something hidden in the skin that's not visible or that you're tricked or a man is tricked into receiving against his will. The forwardness of Antichrist demands visibility here and a visible sense of the blasphemous mockery toward the things of God. Why in the right hand or the forehead? Why? Well, Antichrist seeks, in the spirit of the dragon, seeks to counterfeit everything Christ has done, not just against Christ, but instead of Christ. He mocks everything God has done. This is a mockery, not just of the church, but it's a mockery of Israel and what God told them to do with His Word. Turn to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 8. This follows the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The rabbis will say there can't be a trinity. Jesus can't be God. Messiah can't be God. It says the Lord our God is one Lord. But it's funny. Because the word there in the Hebrew, they have to change it in their Talmuds because the word there in the biblical text is one echad. You know what's funny about that word, one echad? Is in Genesis 2, it's the same word used to say that Adam and Eve became one flesh. One flesh, two persons. God is one Lord. One God and three persons. See, the rabbis actually have to change the word in the biblical text in their Talmuds to claim that God can't be what the Old Testament reveals Him to be. But this is in the context of that great commandment. And then God say in verses... Uh, he gives the great commandment in verse 5 to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then verse 6, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. Not ten minutes in the morning in a quiet time, but a part of your day. That's what it is to meditate upon God's Word. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. Now God was speaking spiritually. They would be as if they were before your eyes at all times, or as if they were engraved upon your hand, to where you couldn't help but see it. Now, Jewish culture today, that's the phylacteries that Jesus is talking about when He's confronting the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They put that little phylacterally where they take a little tiny 
scroll literally and put it on their forehead in the morning and then they wrap the Tephilim, Ricky, you can get in here and correct me if I'm wrong about any of this. He's the expert on Jewish culture. They wrap it around their arms and they think by doing that and getting up in the morning and lifting up their hands, they're somehow right with God. Ignoring the spiritual side of it completely. But this is a mockery. The mark in the hand or the forehead is a mockery of what God told Israel to do spiritually with His Word. It's a mockery. That's why it's in the hand of the forehead. Look also in Ephesians with regard to the church. Paul is talking about the saints that have been set forth from the foundation of the world who have redemption through the blood of Christ that's been prepared from the foundation of the world. Verse 13, "...in whom also you trusted..." talking about trusted in Christ. Verse 13, "...after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed..." word means stamped with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. Those that believe in Christ are stamped with the seal of the Holy Spirit, spiritually. And that seal is an earnest. It's a guarantee. It's a down payment until the glorification of the body. It's a seal. Holy Spirit seals believers for heaven. An earnest, a guarantee of their eventual salvation. Now, there, I don't know how you read Ephesians chapter 1 and think that biblical salvation can be lost. That, that think, and think that that stamp can be undone. The Word makes no sense if what we have to offer the world is no different than what the hope so religion that infests and floods this place. When somebody says you can lose genuine biblical salvation in view of passages like this in Ephesians 1, there's only one response that I can think of. Only one. Okay. I don't know what else to say. But this mark in the hand or the forehead is not just a mockery of what God told Israel to do with His Word spiritually. It's a mockery of the seal of the Holy Spirit that's upon the, the, the body of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.30 goes on to say, Grieve not the Holy Spirit whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. The day of redemption is the redemption of the body. If we're sealed by the Holy Spirit and then salvation can be lost before the day of redemption, then that seal is not very sticky. But believers are sealed for heaven. Sealed for life. The false prophet and the Antichrist mock these things. What we have here in chapter 13 is the anti-spirit with his anti-seal that seals or brands not for life, not for heaven, but brands for hell and the second death. It's a mockery of all that God does. It's a mockery. 
There are other places in Scripture where marks are mentioned. And every time, they're very visible. Very visible and very literal. There's no reason to think that this mark is not visible and literal. In Genesis chapter 4, God said He would put a mark on Cain so that when people saw him, they would know that vengeance is the Lord not, not to mess with him. He was so afraid when God sent him out that people would find out what he had done and they would return it upon his own head. So God put a mark on him so that people would see, don't mess with him. Cain's judgment was what he went out and did. He was forced to wander and he ended up building his descendants built cities. And they're responsible for the evils of urban uh, civilization. That's where it all began. But Cain had a visible mark so that when people saw him, they knew not to mess with him. In Ezekiel 9, God sends an angel with an inkhorn to mark people in the city of Jerusalem who actually saw the sin of the place and were actually vexed like Lot was in Sodom. People that sighed and cried over the sin of the city. God told this angel... Uh, to set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And then these angelic beings were told to go in there and slaughter those that didn't have the mark. So the mark was visible, just like the blood over the doorpost was a mark. The first Passover, it was visible. So we get to Revelation 7. There are marks. I think Ezekiel 9 and Revelation 7 in many ways are talking about the same exact thing here. John saw angels holding back the wind for a moment. And an angel of God crying with a loud voice not to hurt the land or the earth or the sea until the servants of God, the Jewish servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. And then we hear that 12,000 of each tribe are sealed to do God's bidding. Well, what determines who these people are? I believe it's related to those that sigh and cry over the sins of not just Israel, but over the sins of the world. They may not know Christ as of yet, but they sigh and cry and are vexed. And that humility leads to their sealing and then their awakening that Jesus is Messiah. And that awakening turns into bold preaching all over the world. But they are sealed. It's a visible mark. There's no reason to think otherwise. And as a result, um, they're protected in ways that even the tribulation saints, the Gentiles, are not. But visible, literal marks throughout Scripture, why would this be any different? So, chip technology may be involved. But there's a visible element, both in and upon. In verse 16, there's his uh, uh, of, of chapter 13. There is a sacerdotal jurisdiction per se, using religion to drive men toward a political submission. In verse 17, there's a commercial jurisdiction here that this false prophet possesses. No man might buy or sell save that he had the mark. Or the number of the name of the beast, or the number of his name. So, in other words, mark equals name of the beast 
equals number of his name. So if the mark is a name and also a number, it has to be visible. And it's inextricably linked to commerce and the ability to buy and sell. Without the mark, without the brand for hell, one cannot buy, one cannot sell, one cannot trade or ultimately survive. One cannot do these things legally and survive. This is not surprising considering the technologies we have today. Now, I, I've said this is not some chip simply embedded in the skin that you're tricked into receiving. But chip technology may be involved. There is a visible element. But none of this is surprising. The ability to control commerce through a mark is not surprising considering the technologies of today. You have chip and biometric technology. We see it now on our credit cards. Is that chip hidden in the credit card? Yes. But is it visible? Yeah, you know if it's a chip card or not. There's a visible sign. Passports. Are our passport? Do our passports have chips in them? Older ones don't. Do they have chips with antennas? Yeah, they do. I can prove it to you. But there's also a visible sign that tells you this is a chipped biometric passport. Um, there's always a visible discernible element or symbol. It's funny. People won't be tricked or fooled into getting something that they don't know is associated with the beast. When you get the mark, you know it's associated with him. Receiving the mark will be a statement of allegiance and ignorance won't be an excuse in the day of judgment. How do I know it's a statement of allegiance? Because the mark, it says here, is the name of the beast. It is the number of his name. Nothing secret here. Second Thessalonians refers to this visible mark in a sense. We've read these passages before. Turn to Second Thessalonians. We've hit this passage so many times, you ought to have it memorized. About Antichrist chapter 2, beginning at verse 8, talks about the, whole, the restrainer, the what and the he that restrain evil right now. As bad as it is here in America... When we look at the choices we faced with this election, evil is still restrained, my friends, because there's a Holy Spirit on this planet and there's a church. The what is the church. The He is the Holy Spirit. And that in and of itself is a restraint on evil. Even more so than a political candidate. The church is more of a restrainer against evil than Donald Trump is. I can promise you that. But there's a day coming when those things will be taken out of the way. And then in verse 8, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of His mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of His coming. That's Antichrist. Even Him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all powers and signs and lying wonders, the ministry of the false prophet, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, and them that perished. Why did they perish? Because they're deceived? No. Because they receive not the love of the truth, they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. If that doesn't fit your caricature of God, then God, your God's not the God of the Bible. It's that simple. 
God will send a delusion. What is the delusion? The delusion is Antichrist. The delusion is the false prophet. The delusion is the mark. You'll actually think you can receive this mark and be okay with God. That they should believe a lie. That all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The mark is the name of the beast. It's the member, number of his name. It's delusion. It's delusion that brands for hell. Just as the Holy Spirit seals unto the day of redemption a salvation that cannot be lost, the mark damns unto the day of condemnation a damnation that cannot be lost. In fact, in the mark is subtle proof of eternal security because Antichrist counterfeits everything Christ or God does. And his branding is a damnation that cannot be lost, a mockery of a salvation that cannot be lost. Interesting. I want to look at the passport for a minute. What we have, the new passports, uh, if you've had one updated in recent years, this is just an example of something that I believe will be like the chip. It's a biometric passport. Okay. Now, it just looks like a book. You've got information about your biometrics. This is Charlotte's old passport. Picture, information, name, address, birthday, all of this printed. It's visible. Okay? You've got a sign on the front. Um, I don't know if you can see it. It looks like a little flag, like so, with a circle in the middle of it. That's the visible symbol uh, accepted around the world that connotes biometrics. So if this symbol is on a passport, you know it's a biometric passport. But it can't be a biometric with just a symbol. It can't be biometric with just printed words. Yes, there's a visible element, but there's also an embedded element. I don't know if you knew this or not, it was very quietly and secretly done, but your passport has a chip in here with an antenna that can communicate with computer system. And all of your biometric information is contained on that chip. It's not just visible where it can be defaced, it's also embedded. Everything's contained in here. When they read the passport, as you're traveling and going through immigration, oh, this is here as a simple confirmation, but they're not sitting here doing this. They're swiping it. They're accessing the chip and reading all that biometric information. How do I know this to be true and not to be a conspiracy theory? I know it to be true because I took Josiah's expired passport and I put it in the microwave for five seconds. And lo and behold, look what's up on the back. A chip with an antenna. And it caught on fire pretty, pretty quick. Jamie didn't like that. You see where it burned. <laughs> About five seconds in the microwave, brought the chip out, embedded in there. You guys can pass that around and look at it. That's an example of a mark that's in yet upon. So this is already being uh, done. Why is it so? We've already got the model of it in our passports. If you look at your credit cards, guys, or your new debit cards, there's my Charles Schwab I like to use when I travel in other countries because there's no fees for international transactions, ATM withdrawals. This is a biometric, I mean not biometric, but this is a chipped card. How do I know that? I know it because the chip is here. It's visible, this symbol, but yet embedded. The information is embedded. If your card doesn't have this on it, you have to swipe it at the store. If it has this now, they're wanting you to insert it because this does things that this simple visible element cannot do. It's visible and embedded. I think these give us an idea of what's happening with the mark. 
on a passport. Josiah's old passport's ruined. Once you, don't put your passport in the microwave. If you do, it'll ruin it. Now, some people do it as a statement against globalism. But you'll have a problem at the border trying to go into a country that, has, that, that uh, scans biometrics. The chip on the passport, the chip on your uh, credit card cannot be extracted without destroying or rendering useless the, the card or the passport. You can't escape if you... I mean, you, you can't travel internationally if you put it in the microwave. You'll have a problem. Okay? It's the same thing with the mark. You can't buy or sell without it. It's visible. People will know you got it with their eyes and they'll know you have it with their scans. It's invisible and embedded. Why is these things written in first century? The church, this was written in the first century. Amazing prophetic picture of where we are today. Amazing prophetic picture. The mark, visible yet embedded. In yet upon. Not on but in and upon. Some of the modern versions just say on. Like, it can be just, like something just stamped on there that you can rub off at a county fair. No, in yet upon. King's English always amazes me, just like the first century Greek and the ancient Hebrew. Sovereign God who gave the Word preserves the Word. This mark is referred to six other times in nation in addition to right here in verses 16 and 17. Let's just look at these real quick for a minute because they tell us exactly what's involved here. This isn't just about buying and selling. That's not what this is for. It's bigger than that. Chapter 14, verse 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive His mark in His forehead or in His hand. So the receiving of the mark is associated with the worship of the beast. Okay? The same, verse 10, shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of His indignation. And He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Who? who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. You receive the mark, you go to hell. Period. You know, some of these... I don't remember if the Left Behind series done, did this, but I remember that some books written about the tribulation will have characters that they're deceived into getting the mark, and then they realize this is all a lie, and they trust Jesus, and even though they have the mark, and they end up getting saved. Uh, no, that's not biblical. You get the mark... You go to hell, the eternal hell, lake of fire and brimstone. There's no escaping. Once you get the mark, it's over. Just like once you get the Holy Spirit, you get life. Amen. It can't be undone. It's a mockery. But receiving the mark is an act of worship. These two instances, verse 9 and 11, receiving the mark is associated with the worship. This is an act of worship. When you receive the mark, you're giving your allegiance to the beast and you know that's what you're doing. No excuse. Chapter 16, verse 2. Another instance, number 3, in addition to what we saw in verse 13. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth. This is the first vial judgment. And there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. 
Those with the mark are not only those that worship the Antichrist, they're the ones that worship this image that the false prophet has made. And why do they get a sore? They get a sore because what they have is not just something stamped on the skin, it's embedded. It's a foreign object embedded into the human biochemistry that's not meant for the body. You can't do that stuff and go against God's created order and think there's not going to be some physical repercussions. I won't go into any detail, but go talk to any homosexual that's lived a homosexual lifestyle for a while. Go look at their health records. I won't share with you what a doctor uh, that Ricky met in South Africa told him that he sees all the time in the doctor's office. You can't rebel against God's created order in our biology and not expect there to be physical repercussions. That's what we see here with this vile judgment. It's associated with that. But again... Those that have the mark of the beast are those that worship His image. Chapter 19, verse 20. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped His image. These were both cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. In history, two men were carried alive straight into the presence of God. Elijah and Enoch. In history, two men are carried alive straight into the eternal lake of fire, the beast and the false prophet. But who is this false prophet? He's the one that deceived people to receive the mark of the beast and to worship his image. Those that receive the mark are those that worship his image. Receiving the mark is associated with the worship of the beast and his image. And then the last instance is 20 verse 4, And I saw thrones and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. There are people that don't receive the mark and don't worship the beast. And they pay for it with their lives. Tribulation saints. So again, for those that receive the mark, they're associated with those who worship the beast. For those who don't receive the mark, they're associated with those who don't worship the beast. This is an act of worship that allows one to buy and sell without penalty or restriction. It's an act of worship. Just like the people on welfare in this country, when they go to the polls on November 8th, and vote Democrat, that is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. Bowing down before those who've given them free stuff. In my opinion, if you're on welfare in this country, you don't deserve the right to vote. If you're on welfare and you're not paying taxes for whatever reason it is, you ought to give up your you should have to give up your right to vote until you get back on your feet. But most of the people in this country that'll vote Democrat, the government employees and the welfare recipients who pay little of this country's taxes, when they go to the polls, it's an act of worship. And the proof that it's an act of worship is some of these same people are the ones involved in the voter fraud. An act of worship. We already see these things, the spirit of these things happening around us. Why is it any surprise that this will literally come true? When you receive the mark in the tribulation, this is proof of your damnation. 
Just like the receiving of the Holy Spirit is proof of your salvation. It's proof of damnation. It's the seal of eternal death. Just as the Holy Spirit is the seal of eternal life. There's one other place. I've shown you five places where the, receiving the mark is associated with the worship of the beast in his image. There's one other place in Revelation that mentions the mark in addition to chapter 13. It's 15 verse 2. Uh, this is uh, um, prior to the unleashing of the seven vile judgments. John sees a vision in heaven. John see, says, I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name. So they got victory over the beast, his image, his mark, and the number of his name. Stand on the sea of glass in the hearts of God and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So here we have the beast, his image, the mark, and the number of his name all intertwined. They're all connected. So we need to remember that when we try to understand what the mark is. It's associated with a person, associated with his name, and associated with his number, and it's very visible. In, yet upon. The jurisdiction of the beast. He has religious jurisdiction. He has commercial jurisdiction. The religion is intertwined with the ability to buy and sell. You worship the beast or you don't buy and sell. Straight up man-made religion as it's always been. Going back to Nimrod on the plain of Shinar and the Tower of Babel. Verse 18 the last verse of the chapter, I think we're going to get there without breaking Matthew's record. I never have broke that record. We've looked at the jurisdiction of the false prophet. This is the moral. Right here in verse 18, it's the moral of the story. Just like we had in the early part of the chapter, the moral of the Antichrist. Verses 9 and 10. The moral of the second beast. What's the moral here? Look at chapter 13, 9, and 10. We've got the moral of the Antichrist, or the first beast. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of God's saints. What's the moral? What's the lesson from God in the rise of Antichrist? Very simple. Payday, someday. That's the moral of the story for the world. Payday, someday. The Antichrist, according to Isaiah 10, is God's vengeance. The rod of my indignation, O Assyrian. It's divine karma. It's the patience and faith of the saints. My friends, the rise of Antichrist for the raptured church is the patience and faith of the saints. There is a God that judges the righteous. There is a God that rules in the earth. These things prove it because they're written. The moral of the Antichrist is that the people of this earth will get exactly what they deserve. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. That's the moral of the first beast. What's the moral of the second beast? Here, chapter 13, verse 18. Here is wisdom. This is what tells us this is the moral of the story. Just like verse 9 says, He that has an ear, let him hear. This indicates that teaching here is beyond the period of tribulation. It's a moral of the story. Here is wisdom. 
Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is six hundred three score and six. The people of earth, the earth will get what they deserve. Payday someday. Someday, the moral of the Antichrist. The moral of the false prophet. You boast that we come from beast. A beast will rule over you. And he will brand you as cattle. Sheeple. He will rule over you in the beast that you say we came from as men. The brute beast that you are in this life will be ruled like beast and you'll be branded for hell. You'll be branded just like cattle with a number and a name. Just like a cattle is branded with the name of the ranch and his number. You're going to be just like that. You boast that you came from a beast, you'll be ruled by one and you'll be branded as cattle, sheeple, brute beast. We have already spoken our own judgment. We spoke the judgment on ourselves. Oh, man came... There's no God. We came from pond scum and evolved into monkeys. And You know, our sexual inclinations are just beastly. We can't judge people. It's natural. You know, like an animal. We've spoken our own judgment. We should have looked at Israel's example. Why did Israel wander in the desert for 40 years and die? Is it because God just came up with that judgment? No. They spoke their own judgment. Turn to number 14 real quick. I'm almost done. Numbers 14. 28 and 29. Murmuring, complaining. Oh, God just brought us out here to die in the desert. We'd have been better off staying in Israel. Caleb and, uh, and Joshua. No, no, no. God brought us. He'll give us victory. The people complained. Then God finally says in verse 28 of chapter 14, saying to them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number from twenty years old and upward which have murmured against me. As you have spoken in my ears, so it be done unto you. That's exactly what the rise of this false prophet is. God saying to the world, as you have spoken in my ears, so it be done unto you. That's exactly what this mark is. You've said we came from animals. You've denied me a grave evil. And so it be done unto you. You came from animals. You'll be branded like animals. Or you won't buy and sell. Moral of the story. Payday someday. And be careful what you say. Because you often speak your own judgment. We cannot know for 100% certainty what exactly this mark is or what it will look like. All the Scriptures tell us are that it, where it's located, they give it a nominative association. It's associated with the name of the beast and it has a numeric association, a number. It's visible. It's got a location on the right hand or the forehead. It's got a name associated with it, the name of the beast. And it's got a number associated with it. It says here the number is the number of a man. 603 score and 6. 666. Six, six. That's all we know. We can't know exactly what it is. It's not a visa card. It's not a social security card. It's not a barcode. It's not gathering together as Christians on Sunday morning. That's not the worship of the beast. That's what the Seventh-day Adventist cult teaches. 
fact, you can go up here in Hickory. There's an herbal doctor up here. You know, it says a lot about people when you claim to believe something, but you, you won't put it out there. It's like you're ashamed to share it. Or you, know, you may vote, but you keep it secret. This guy is a Seventh-day Adventist. He's got a sign on the side of his building. It, you, you can't see it just normally driving down the road. It's there, but you've got to kind of go around a building, place where people aren't going to go. And it mentions that Sunday is the worship of the beast. But he must not believe it strongly enough to put it on the front of his store because he, know he, won't, he, he knows he won't give business. So he's going to put it on the side. I mean, you know, come on. If you're going to make a decision, then don't be ashamed of it. If you're going to vote a certain way, don't be ashamed of it. Or you may as well not vote at all. But it's not Sunday worship like the Seventh-day Adventist cult says. It's not an iPhone. It's not these things. What is it? It's the number of a man. It's 666. 600, 3 score, and 6. Well, what, what's up with this number 6? Well, 6 is one short of 7. Seven's God's number. It's the number of completion. God created the world in six days, and, but it wasn't complete until He had rested on the seventh. When we look at Revelation chapter 5, the Lamb, the Lion of the tribe of Judah comes out, he is worthy to open the scroll with seven horns and seven eyes. The sevenfold Spirit of God. The number of completion. Man, however, at his best state is always short of God. At his very best, he falls short of God. Satan is the same. Can never be God. Six can never be seven. It can be high, it's higher than one, two, three, four, five, but it can never be seven. Man at his best state, Psalm 39, 5, is altogether vanity. Psalm 82. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees by quoting this passage. He turned their stupid arguments against them. God's writing to Israel, you receive the Word of God... You say, therefore, because you were receiving the Word of God, that you are gods. Ye are gods, Psalm 82, 6, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Man can be as little g gods or think he is, but he dies like a man. Because six will never be seven. Six is man's number. We see this in the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, there was a type of Antichrist in his mockery and opposition of God's people. Who, who, who was that? Great warrior. Mockery of God's people. It was Goliath. Or as my Finnish friend used to say, Goliath. He was the Philistine Superman. Like Antichrist is the world's Superman. 1 Kings 17. It's interesting. Goliath was six cubits high. He had six pieces of armor. And his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. Six, the number of a man. Man is to work six days and rest on the seven. It's what defines man's work week. Nebuchadnezzar's image, which is a foreshadowing of the image that Antichrist will erect, or the, the false prophet will erect, it's, we're told it was 60 cubits high, and six cubits broad. Six associated with man. It's the number of a man. Antichrist is powerful. The false prophet is powerful, but only on man's level. 
He can't go above that. that. This entire system centers upon the worship of a man. The idea that man is God. Exactly what pervades our education system. When I cast my votes on this ballot, there were a couple places I couldn't vote. One of them was the uh, Catawba County uh, Board of Commissioners and something to do with the Board of Education. Look, folks, I have no vested interest whatsoever in the Catawba County school system. None. I'm not, why would I vote? I have no vested interest whatsoever. Plus, it doesn't tell us what these people believe or who they are. But the education system teaches us that man is God. Even here in Burke County, a lady was telling us that's a teacher when we preached at that other church last week, that they're instructing their teachers in Burke County schools not to use traditional pronouns to refer to students, he and she. Because you might offend somebody. And she's like, I'm too old to change what I've been saying. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. But they've already been warned in Burke County schools not to do that. We have an education system that says man is God. Why is it any surprise that the world worship a man as God? But Antichrist and the false prophet, man, whether it was in the plain of Shinar, the Tower of Babel, or the rise of the revised Roman Empire, will always fall short of the deity, authority, and omnipotence of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is not man. He's not a man. Antichrist can do all these miracles. The false prophet can do all these deceptions, but at the end of the day, he's not God. He's the number of a man. Look what God says about Himself. I know I'm running along. Be patient with me. The most exciting part is about to come, what you're really interested in. You're patient with me. You don't have to hear me for a long time. Numbers 23, 19. This is the prophecy of Balaam. 23, 19. God is not man that He should lie, neither the Son of Man that He should repent. Hath He said, and shall not He do it? Or hath He spoken, and shall He not make it good? God's not a man. He doesn't lie, and He doesn't have to repent, because when God says something, He does it. Antichrist, at the end of the day, is just a man. He can't be like God in this fashion. He says one thing to Israel, but He doesn't do it. Just He's number six. Never be number seven. 1 Samuel 15 says the same thing, basically. 1 Samuel 15, verse 29. This is when Saul has rebelled against God and Samuel rebukes him. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Romans 3, 4 says, Let God be true and let every man be a liar. The number of a man will never be the number of God. You know, it's funny, it's, it's funny and sad at the same time. It's very predictable. So many will fall for the lie of Antichrist because we've already fashioned God as a man in our own minds. That's the problem with American churchianity. We fashion God as a man in our own minds to serve our own lust and pleasures. We have fashioned God not according to His Word, but according to our emotions, according to the spirit of the age, as if God is fickle and He changes and He said one thing in His Word, but this is one way why He rationalizes out. I mean, it's, we've already done these things as a society. And the society will willingly roll out the red carpet. Let God be true and every man a liar. 
John Nelson Darby was a, a politician, I mean a theologian. He probably said it best when talking about the actual number here, 666. I confess my ignorance as to the number 666. We find answering to the number 666 the words apostasy and tradition associated with it, but I cannot say anything uh, positive on the subject. We can't know exactly why or what that is or what it looks like. That's probably the best statement that can be said. Now, Darby is the one that all these Reformed guys say just invented the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture. He lived, I believe, in the late 1800s. Darby did not invent the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture. That is about the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And if you're regurgitating that garbage on Facebook, you can't be trusted to handle the Scriptures and you sure don't know anything about history. It's amazing what people say as if they know what they're talking about. Darby did not invent that doctrine. That doctrine has been with us in the Scriptures since the Scriptures were written. And it's been believed by Bible-believing remnant body believers throughout history who knew the persecution of Catholicism, who took a stand on the Word of God long before the Reformers were ever born. The Waldensian believers, they had a motto, Lux Lucae in Tenebris, light shining in darkness. Persecuted terribly. They had biblical eschatological doctrine long before Darby was ever born. A light shining in darkness. But Darby said, we can't know exactly what that is. That's my point. But he did not invent the pre-tribulational rapture. God declares it in the Scriptures. Learn how to rightly divide the Word of God. And you won't have to regurgitate so much. But, we can't know exactly what this is, but I believe there's a clue hiding in plain sight probably has been, every one of us, none of us in here have seen it. It's been overlooked. It's hiding in plain sight. Just like Messiah's coming, when it would be, was hidden in plain sight. And the Jews missed it. They should have known Jesus was Messiah. They should have known that He had to come before the second temple was destroyed. Antichrist is hidden in plain sight, but they miss Him. The mark is hidden in plain sight. It's funny, human beings have to have something visible to worship and they'll prefer the, a riddle over something plain. That's just the way we are. In the church, we've got to have some riddle or some sign instead of we've got God's diary right here. It's plain. We'll ignore it and look for a sign. That's just human nature. 603 score and 6 is what is written here in the King's English, in the King's James text. But, when I go back to the Greek New Testament, the received text of the Greek New Testament. That's not what... These words are not written. That's what, what's written is what is meant. That is a 100% accurate translation. But what is written is this, right here. What, what our English Bible says, 603 score and 6, is summed up with this three-letter Greek word in the received Textus Receptus, which was the basis for the King James text. Now some of the modern Greek texts have gone and spelled this out. But that's not what's in the received text passed down through the centuries. The, the text of the Reformers, the text of the Waldensians and the butchered Bible believers throughout history that goes back to the days of the Apostles. That's what's written in the Greek text. That's interesting. These are three letters in Greek that have numerical values. Here you have the chi. The chi has a numerical value of 600. 
Here in the middle you have the xi. It's not so common of a letter. Sorry, this is not right. Looks kind of like that. The xi has a value of 60 and the sigma or the stigma, which is the a sigma is in the middle or the beginning of the word. A stigma is at the end of a word. The stigma has a value of 6. So we have a three-letter abbreviation that stands for 660 and 6. Okay? Just like what is written in the King James text. Now here's what I find interesting. Um, when I take notes and prepare for sermons, I use abbreviations. I've always done it. If I'm taking notes, I often put this. Who knows what that stands for? It's an abbreviation in theological circles for righteousness. Okay? Sometimes I use this. It's an abbreviation in theological circles for justification. Sometimes I use this. That's an abbreviation in theological circles for the millennial kingdom. Or it could be used for Messiah. So you'll find in my notes I use abbreviations. There are abbreviations that were used in first century the first century church, uh, and in some Greek manuscripts, you'll find these abbreviations. For example, you'll see these abbreviations in manuscripts. This is the abbreviation, the chi and the stigma for Christos, Christ. Okay? Here at the bottom, you'll see the abbreviation for God, Theos, the theta and the stigma. Now these words are written like this, out fully, but sometimes the abbreviations were used. Okay, in fact, if you go to First Timothy chapter three sixteen, the Bible says God was manifest in the flesh. Most manuscripts write out Theos, God, but there are some that use the abbreviation. Now there is a uh, a line of corrupt manuscripts that comes out of Alexandria that the modern Bibles are based on that don't say God is manifest in the flesh. They change that Scripture to say who appeared in a body. It doesn't even make sense uh, grammatically. But what they try to say, this is, this is the, the word who in Greek, they try to say that somebody came along later and added a line and created the abbreviation from God. Now, uh, hello... Anybody home? I mean, come on, what's more likely that happened? Somebody took a pronoun and added a line to make it God, or the abbreviation for God was there and the line got faded over time? In fact, the corrected versions of some of these correct manuscripts in the margin have this correct, but the abbreviation for God was used um, in, in the manuscript tradition from time to time. And it's used here in Revelation. There's an abbreviation for 666. The word in 1 Timothy 3 is God. The manuscript evidence is abundant. The internal evidence necessitates it. You can trust the King's English. Make no mistake. But, abbreviations are not uncommon when it comes to the names of God and things like that. In fact, now Ricky, you can speak up and correct me if I'm wrong here. What was the name God said to Moses? What was God's name? I am that I am. How is it written? It's written as the Tetragrammaton, yod heh vav heh in Hebrew. That is not I am that I am. That is an abbreviation for I am that I am. I am that I am is a sentence. So this, the Tetragrammaton, is an abbreviation for the name of God. That's what it is. We look at this and we know that it means I am. 
Because that's what's associated with what He spelled out there for Moses from the bush. I am that I am. When you look at the Hebrew text and God says, I am that I am, this isn't what's there. It's spelled out. This is an abbreviation. Okay, We pronounce that Jehovah. Some people say it's Yahweh, but that's getting into German scholarship. I don't even want to go down that road. Uh, I, that, that, that is incorrect in my opinion. But uh, we won't go road. But in a sense, the Tetragrammaton, the name for God, is an abbreviation. Remember, Satan tries to mock everything that God does. Christ, Christos, is abbreviated this way. Okay, so what do we see here with this number in the Greek text? We see the abbreviation for Christ with a serpent-shaped character in the middle. And that is both a name and a number. The abbreviation for Christ divided by the C, which looks like a serpent. Okay? I find that quite interesting. We're told that the mark is associated with a number and a name. The number here is 666, but if we look at it, taking into consideration the use of abbreviations for the name of God in the Greek and Hebrew text, it's not just a number, it's a name. What do we have? We have Christ sandwiched with the character that looks just like a serpent. Now my Greek printing or writing is not as clear, but go home if you've got a Greek New Testament, the Texas Receptus, look it up. You'll see it there. Okay, The name of Christ with the serpent in between. Now what's funny is this letter here, the stigma, that word stigma is a Greek letter from when we get the English word stigma. What's a stigma? It's a mark of infamy. It's a mark of disgrace. This um, stigma also has the connotation in Greek of sticking or puncturing. So has it been there right before our eyes the whole time? Is this the mark? Makes sense to me. Visible and yet embedded, connected with some sort of biometric technology. An abbreviation of Christ, couching what looks like a serpent, a numerical value of 666. It includes a stigma, which is where we get our word in English, a mark of infamy. And it connotes sticking or puncturing, all couched in that one three-letter numerical word. And how close... I mean, um, I'm sorry, I just lost my train of thought. In other words, maybe we have a clue here that's hidden in plain sight. Is this what the mark of the beast will look like? Perhaps. I'm not going to stand dogmatically upon it, but it's interesting when you look at it in the Greek text. Right before our eyes, there was a a band member for the well-known band Led Zeppelin that had a... He came up with a, a symbol that was his name, but it was also a number. It looked something like this. This is what Jimmy Page came up with. It was a name and it was also a number. It was a stylized way. When you saw it, it, it was associated with his name. But it's a stylized way of writing from ancient script the number 666. Okay, so it's kind of a, an example of how someone could do this. But all along, there's something in the Scriptures that fits what the Scriptures decide, I mean, describe in terms of what it looks like. There's a lot of places in Scripture where the, the truth is right before our eyes. 
And sometimes we're too blind to see. The truth is right before our eyes in terms of Christ's second coming and the literal truth of that. It was right before our eyes when, when 1948 took place and God regathered Israel into the land. But these people that boast in their post-millennial replacement theology today are too blind to see it. I mean, when it comes to post-millennial replacement theology and what the Scriptures have to say, I, I, I don't really know what else to respond to that, but... Anybody have any questions? That's just my what, what I noticed with the mark. I'm not going to take a dog position on what it looks like, but there's a lot in Scripture that's right before our eyes and we missed it. It was all right before Israel's eyes and she missed it. It's all right before the church's eyes with regard to homosexuality and we miss it. It's right there. Very interesting. Jesus Christ's name divided by a serpent. Yes. see a vibrant um, a vibrant rainbow it's made up of seven colors we know that from school it's made up of seven distinct colors which is the number of John the rainbow flag that the homosexual movement flies is made up of six colors uh, and that, that's just a straight picture taking what is God's and making it what's man's and what is man's and, and it go look it up the rainbow flag the homosexual movement is six colors it's not seven and that that's I mean, isn't this exactly what the, the spirit of antichrist right there any christian that can't see that for what it is i mean I, you can't tell me if it's just a coincidence that they left the color out oh no no <laughs> it's not so anyway i just find it interesting it goes right along with it Amen. Well, that's the end of chapter 13. And uh, chapter 14, things begin working toward their conclusion in the book of Revelation. It moves fast. So we'll get back into that at the first of the year. We've got a lot to do before now. Thanks for indulging me today. I hope that gave some insight. Again, not a dogmatic position. All we can know for certain is that it is associated with worship. It's got a, a nominative association and a numeric association. And if you get it, you're damned. But praise God, He's coming for His church. And we can see these things unfold on the sidelines uh, in the presence of the Lord as the church is in Revelation chapter 4 and 5.